We're starting things off with a word from our sponsor. Since 1998, DVD Netflix has delivered more than 5 billion DVD and Blu-ray rentals to movie lovers in every American zip code and to military bases around the world in their famous, iconic red envelopes. With an extensive library of titles from the early 1900s to today and shows from such premium networks as HBO and Showtime, DVD Netflix is a must for physical media lovers. Featuring a variety of different plans starting at as little as $8.99 per month, it's a great way to experience DVDs and Blu-rays with special features and commentary tracks you won't find anywhere else. A member for over 20 years, so well before I ever began working with the service as an official blogger on acting or as a DVD, Netflix, Twitter, film discussion host, I think it's a terrific way to keep our vintage video store memories alive and support the physical media that we love so much. So be sure to check out DVD Netflix for yourself at dvd.com. Now, on with the show. Hey, this is Jen Johans at filmintuition.com and filmintuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. Returning to Watch with Jen this week, we have my very talented friend and an official and very popular friend of the show. William Boyle is the acclaimed novelist behind such titles as Gravesend, The Lonely Witness, A Friend is a Gift You Give Yourself, City of Margins, and Shoot the Moonlight Out. In addition to crafting these wonderfully humanistic, Lumet-like, character-driven ensemble crime epics, Bill is quite a pop culture buff and one hell of a good movie trivia game player as well. So, Bill, thank you so much for being here. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me back, Jess. Always, always great to talk to you, and I'm excited about about this. Everything's everything's all right, you know. Just writing, reading, watching movies, usual. Sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> How about you? How are you doing? Um, doing the same, really, exactly. And summer is the perfect time for that here in Phoenix because the weather is insane. It's well over 100 degrees as we're recording this. Uh, Bill and I were talking off air because our mutual friend Megan Abbott was just in Scottsdale on Sunday and it was like 105 degrees that day. So I felt <laughs> bad that that's the day she came to Scottsdale, but we had a lot of fun and we really missed Bill. But Yes, absolutely. Well, part of the reason I thought this was a really good idea, uh, Bill and I have so many ideas, like, <laughs> I think we have a list a mile long, every time we talk or hang out or do one of our game nights or whatever, we come up with more, Ooh, we should do an episode on that. But I thought this would be perfect for Bill, because his books are quite a big hit in France. And the past I'd say a couple of years, maybe he's gone over there quite a bit and um, toured and read his work and his next work is going to be published in France as well. So it's very exciting. And I thought he would be the perfect person to celebrate these movies. We love these French crime films that kind of shaped our taste. And Bill, why don't you tell me about what it's like being an author, an American author in France, and what touring over there is like. Oh, thanks. Well, yeah, I mean that. It's this is all. It's interesting because this is all so 
tied up together for me because you know i loved growing up i loved these american crime writers who were you know neglected or forgotten in america and were were celebrated in france you know writers like david goodis who we're going to talk about shoot the piano player in a little while and um jim thompson and you know even even writers like elmore leonard and james elroy were more successful kind of there first before um before they kind of broke bigger here so you know i always had that kind of lore in mind growing up um and certainly not just crime writers a lot of other american writers too ranging from you know poe to faulkner and so there's always um i was always kind of aware of that but a lot of writers i loved who you know were were not a big deal here ever or or at least for a long time um, had careers there or celebrated. So it was always, you know, kind of big, big dream of mine. And, um, and my first book came out in America with a really small press and it got translated into French, um, within a couple of years or a few years because of my translator read an interview with me and liked the book and pitched it to publishers there. And it kind of, you know, got published as, the thousandth release in um, Francois Guérif's Rivage Noir collection. Um, oh, and that wow. was the collection that had, you know, had basically, you know, published Goodis, Thompson, uh, Leonard, Elroy, all these writers, you know, and, and um, made them um, big deals in, in France. Um, so, and That's he, you know, for the, Bill. Um, yeah, it was pretty, it was amazing because I was, I was nobody. And, uh, I mean, I still am nobody, but I was especially nobody at that time. Um, and he chose me because he wanted it to be like a symbolic return to the roots of the publishing house, um, where he chose an, an American writer who nobody knew instead of, you know, I think the other the other choice for the thousand pick was was Elroy. It was going to be me or Elroy for that that oh release. Oh my goodness! Um, and he went with the the, the writer nobody knows. So that kind of that was 2016, I think, when that kind of started um, things off for me on a really good foot. Because I had, I, you know, Francois Guérif is my editor. He's he's just the the, the greatest publisher and editor, um, and he um, he kind of you know made made something happen for me that certainly wouldn't have happened otherwise. And um, and then I moved with him to another publisher, Gallmeister. And so I've had, you know, uh, all my books have come out there. And I've even had one book that has only come out there and hasn't come out here, um, except in book serialized um, magazine oh, I need format. To read that. <laughs> uh, I'll send it to you. Um, and uh, so it's been amazing. Yeah, it's been a little bit more. It's been, you know, a handful of years now that I've, I've probably gone over there about. 10 or 11 times for for book stuff and it's uh it's incredible i mean it's just um such a great culture for literature and for bookstores and um you know go my publisher is great about sending me all over the place in france um some very rarely unless i'm at a festival that i've been to already i'm very rarely at the same place twice and i'm hardly ever doing anything in Paris. It's kind of all over the country. So oh, you know, wow. okay. I'll, I'll 
travel, you know, wherever they, wherever they send me. Um, you know, this time I was in, I was just there in, in late March and early April and I was in, um, the South for part of the trip and then up in the North for part of the trip and then back in the, in the I was in the Southeast and then the Southwest. So I was all over the place and, um, just, you know, you go to sometimes smaller, smaller towns or in smaller cities, they just have many bookstores. Amazon's not a thing. Amazon's kind of, you know, uh, I mean, it exists, but it's, um, they have, they have kind of rules in place to, to stop it from taking over. So that's really um, good. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's just a, a, a place where, uh, independent bookstores are are really valued and being a bookseller is valued and you know it's just such an incredible literary culture so when i'm over there i'm you know meeting meeting booksellers and readers and other writers and, and um uh you know talking talking books and movies with people it's just it's uh, it's sur- it's always you know surreal in the best possible way and then you know um it's hard to hard to wrap my head around it when i'm not when i'm home that it actually happened but it's it's uh it's always great that's wonderful i was telling bill that megan and i consider him one of the best kept secrets in crime fiction here in america so i love that over in france he is that respected there's a joke among our group of friends uh that blake and i were saying we were going to be his like press agents or his pr people and you know like we'd both walk in the room and we're both like roughly around six feet tall and we you know cross our arms and blake would say like it is gruff uh, australian accent like do you know how big this mfr is in <laughs> france and uh that was going to be our intro to every room and so wow. it's Love it. yes and i should say too it's you know it's it, there there's a bunch of other writers i know who are in a similar similar yeah, spot who true. have careers there and um you know reputations there that uh haven't quite you know happened happened here so there's a a, my publisher gallmeister publishes a handful of great writers like um, peter peter farris and jen kingston and uh ben whitmer who um are kind of similar similar spots like they're they're winning awards and you know being read and you know really um doing doing well and and here it's uh not quite on the same level yeah so we're roughly the same age within a year or two essentially and so i kind of was exposed to french film i would say in my teen years i think a big incentive uh it was all over bravo and amc and those channels after pulp fiction hit there was quite a, a resurgence of interest with you know the anna karina wig that uh Uma Thurman War and Pulp Fiction and the idea of Godard, you know, every movie has a beginning, a middle and an end, just maybe not in that order, not necessarily in that order, I believe is the exact quote. And so I think 400 Blows was really my first intro to French film, besides, you know, seeing some of the films that like Siskel and Ebert were recommending. Uh, I was a huge fan. Uh, he's a Polish filmmaker, Kieślowski, but he was working in the French language with the Three Colors trilogy. So I remember kind of like early to mid 90s was when I first got into French movies and became totally hooked on the new wave. I kept uh, just digesting as many of these crime films as possible because I love film noir and 
you know, it's a nice little bridge into foreign film, essentially, because they were inspired by us. And of course, film noir is known as an American art form, but at the same time, it's coming from German expressionism and the filmmakers who came over here. So it's all a melting pot. When did you first get into French movies? Um, yeah, that's, I, I was, th- I was trying to think about it. it is it all kind of, you know, blurs together a little bit, but probably around the same time. And, um, I think, you know, for me, because I'd started to get into crime fiction from fiction from a really young age, um, it was, as you said, kind of a perfect gateway for me, you know, so I was reading writers like Jim Thompson, and David Goodis mm-hmm. and stuff, you know, when I was 13, 14, 15, like that was when I was starting to discover all that kind of vintage black lizard oh, um, yeah. stuff. And and I was just falling in love with that. And simultaneously, you know, I mean, I've loved movies my whole life, but probably around that same time um, because of the kind of, you know, early nineties, neo-noir stuff that was happening. That was, that was my entry into a lot of the crime fiction. And then I was also going back and discovering a lot of American film noir and and gangster movies and stuff. So, um, but I wasn't really until, you know, until um, I guess later in high school, I wasn't really into foreign cinema at all, you know, by maybe junior year of high school is when I would have started watching um, French new wave stuff, which was, was it, you know, that was the beginning for me um, too. And it was, it was the perfect beginning for all those reasons, because I'd already kind of grown up on American gangster movies and film noir and, uh, and was reading all this crime fiction. And then to see this, this movement that was totally rooted in all of that, in all of that stuff. And, um, you know, was even, again, you know, adapting these writers that were, were undervalued or forgotten yeah. in America. I mean, like, you know, at that point, David Goodis was, was, you know, um, a writer that I hadn't, you know, he's, he wasn't somebody like Jim Thompson, even who, who would have been, you know, his books weren't being made into movies in the nineties in America, you know, so to, to see um, that stuff um, kind of, being so central to the, the the inspiration for these filmmakers was was incredible. And it was all, you know, it was just such a it was such a formative time for me. I mean, I was probably into all the things that you'd expect a kid and, you know, and probably the same things you were into at the same time, like that junior year of high school is like French New Wave, Jack Kerouac, mm-hmm. uh, yep. <laughs> Velvet Underground. Like oh, I was we would have hung out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I was discovering all that stuff at the same time. So it's all kind of tied up together, but um, it's really, yeah. I mean, it's, it's fascinating to kind of look back at it from, from now and, and um, just see how many of my interests kind of, you know, coincided in that, in that one, one place and this, this group of filmmakers and what they were doing and what they were influenced by. Yeah, I think there's nothing like what you fall in love with when you're a teenager. Yeah, it kind of always stays with you because, yeah. you know, you're more hormonal and you're more inspired by things and exposed to the world like those writers, you know, you'll have so much love for those that you hungrily uh, went after all of their books that you could find films, you know, I think anything you discover when you're young 
you and I have a big fondness for 90s music as well and older film or older films and older music also but the 90s is kind of a big bonding point for the two of us and yeah that's when these kind of hit once again there was really a new interest in the french new wave and also you know there have been so many other new waves that were taking off and so you know the mid 90s to the late 90s you were seeing people like wong kar wai making films that were heavily influenced by these and so you got into the hong kong films and then around turn of the uh, the new millennium we had of course the mexican new wave very exciting filmmakers uh with Peron and um Inaratu. and so yeah this was really an exciting time and i was very uh excited to come up with this idea with you and we also had so many thoughts on movies that we could talk about because the sky is the limit here that you know this might wind up being a series so this could be part one I think it will be part one because there are so many wonderful films that we would want to explore so the films that you chose for today I thought was a really smart idea how you approached this you went for like 50s 60s and 70s and so um, you chose, do you want to introduce these films real quick? And then we'll go Sure, and I'm not going to, you know, and even though I, we were just talking about that I spent time in France and um, you would Oh you yeah, would both think, of us, you, I put you might, the language, yes. Yeah, you might think that means I speak French and I, I absolutely <laughs> don't. And I've been over there not enough now that I'm totally embarrassed by how how poorly I do with the language. Um, I can read a little and I can like, you know, follow signs and maybe order coffee but and say I'm <laughs> sorry, but that's about it. Um, so I'm going to try to avoid butchering titles and names as, as much as I can. And I'm going to stick with, um, yes. I'm going to stick with the English versions of, of titles for the most part. And so the first one is, um, which I guess the UK, in the UK, it was released as Honor Among Thieves, which is a terrible title, but it is, um, yeah. the, the the French title translates to Hands Off the Loot or Don't Touch the Loot um, yes. by Jacques Becker. Um, that's the first one. And then um, that's 54. And then Truffaut's uh, Shoot the Piano Player, which mm -hmm. is what, 60? Is that 60? Did that come out in 60? I yes. can't even remember the year. Yes. Um, and then um, a film that actually, you know, I mean, Shoot the Piano Player was a film I saw um, early on. That was one of the wave of kind of the, the first, yep. first, uh, first of these movies that I was exposed to. You know, it was Breathless, 400 Blows and Shoot the Piano Player, I think, were the first three, mm -hmm. maybe Band of Outsiders, too. Those were the first yes. four, I guess, um, French New Wave films I would have seen. Um, don't touch the loot i think was a little later for me i discovered that one and then this one the last one um which is from 1971 Claude saute's max and the jumpman is a very recent first time watch for me um and you know i was actually it was just when i was just over there in march um april i was talking to this guy i can't remember his name i think it was vincent after a reading i did in um, a suburb of paris and we were talking about movies and talking about, you know, got around to talking about French movies. And I think he was kind of, I, I went a little deeper than he, I think he expected I would. 
And he was surprised, pleasantly surprised by that. But then he he threw out Claude Sauté's name. Um, and I don't know if I'm saying that right. I'm sorry. Not I believe you are. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, I, I think uh, I, I, it, I blanked. I was like, no, I never I never heard of him. And I went back and um, when I was back in my hotel that night, I you know checked his filmography. And certainly I'd, I'd heard of a couple of his movies, but I don't think I'd seen anything except, you know, I think he wrote or co-wrote Eyes Without a Face, which I had seen and loved, but I didn't know, you know, I hadn't seen anything else that he direct. I didn't see any of the films on the, the list um, of his directing credits. And um, so I immediately, you know, started going through them. And this was, this was one that blew me. I mean, I've, I've watched a couple of his, or a few of his films now. And I've loved them all. Um, he didn't only make crime films, but, he made a couple of crime films and uh, this is, this is one of them. And again, kind of first time, first time watch Max from the Junkman. Sorry. I kind of no, gave up. Great. I should, I should, I should also preface this by saying I've largely given up drinking coffee this year, but I just had a cup. So I feel like really jittery. amped up right now. I'm sorry. I'm, no, I'm sorry. <laughs> That's okay. I'm <laughs> you know, I'm probably jittery too, because it's super hot out. It's, <laughs> it's summertime, you know, uh, listeners, we apologize. Also, we're just really amped to talk to you yeah. about French crime movies. This is a passion. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. But hopefully people are listening because they're right there with us. So we hope so. And I love that you brought up that this was a new one for you because yesterday was my first first time watch of it, obviously. And um, my first first time watch. Yes. And I loved it very much. Uh, Romy Schneider. I was kind of getting into I made some jokes online about, you know, do I want to wear a fedora? <laughs> I actually like for two minutes started Googling buying a fedora because she puts one on and it's very sexy. Yeah, in the such back. a good scene. Yes. And, you know, he takes photos of her and I was like, or do I just want to borrow a guy's fedora for like two minutes and then do the Romy Schneider? But um, and also somebody was saying how much they loved her in that. And I, I pointed out, I'm like, you know, she's playing a hooker. But disturbingly, I wanted some of her fashions. And so then I'm like, you know, what does that say? Well, they're French, you know. And so I had so much fun with that. Um, the first film is also a relatively new watch. I want to say I either watched um, Don't Touch the Loot or Hands Off the Loot, uh, Touche Pas au Grisby, if I'm saying that without butchering it too terribly. I think I saw it in the last year or two years. Uh, Jacques Becker, it was a new one. I really enjoyed it. And so that again, these were both very, well, one is extremely new and one is pretty newish, but shoot the and both. Oh, sorry. Oh, go for it. No, I was going to say both of those just recently got, I mean, within the last few years, have gotten good Kino Lorber Blu-rays too, which is um, nice. a nice yeah. thing that you, you know, unifies that conversation a little bit, I guess. Yeah. And we should also point out, you can get both of these, at least at the time of this recording on Canopy is where yeah. uh, I found both of them. Canopy is a really cool app and service that a lot of times if your library is a member, you just like use your library card, maybe 
create an account however it works in your area and you have access to all of these wonderful films and they have the keynote titles and some really extraordinary films that aren't even in the Criterion channel right now. Yeah, um, I don't shoot the piano player might be on there too. I'm not sure. They have Criterion stuff on there a lot. Um, they do. Yeah. I know it's on the it's on the Criterion channel. Right That's now. where I watched it. Yes. Yeah, um, but it might be on Canopy too because that I don't think that ever got a Criterion Blu-ray. I think it's only gotten a DVD. I know. I am waiting for like a monster box of Truffaut yeah, to be released. That'd be nice. Yes. I had the Antoine Duanel series, uh, but I think they were only in DVD because it was that mm-hmm. long ago. And then there was a time I was like downsizing and I had to pay back student loans. And so I, I just stupidly sold the set because I'd written this huge monster thesis and I thought you know it might be a while till I rewatch these then as soon as I did I regretted it immediately and yeah. Uh, so yeah we need them to re-release all of these uh, Truffaut titles for us anyone listening at Criterion uh, please hook us up and also you know bring on some more of these French crime movies but also thank you to uh, Canopy for doing this so do you want to jump into Hands Off the Loot or do you want to yeah. go chronologically okay go for it um, sure. Yeah. I mean, I don't, you know, I should also, I mean, I'm really excited that we're doing this and, and these are, are films that I absolutely love. And, um, I should preface this by saying that I am not a scholar whatsoever no, of this yes. stuff. And, you know, I, I'm, we're I'm just, just coming up. Yeah, yeah. I'm just a fan. And I think, you know, for me, um, I was, when I was thinking about what, what films to um, to talk about for this episode? I think I always kind of tend to lean towards stuff that is inspiring me or I'm thinking about in the moment. Um, you know, especially in terms of things that I'm writing, you know, working on. So mm-hmm. um, I, I think that was a big part of why I chose these three films. They just kind of all had this element of you know. Um, something I wanted to think about or focus on in, in my own own work. So um, I can't remember when the first time I, I watched this was. Mm-hmm. Um, I saw it um, years ago, certainly, um, in, you know, in a way that I don't know. I don't know how it was for you, but for me, there's there's definitely an era of like, you know, late high school, college, even into my early 20s where I kind of watched stuff that people said I needed to watch and mm-hmm. it didn't, you know, I, I liked it at the time, but, um, but it was, I was kind of getting my footing as a viewer and I think learning how to watch things still for a large part of that period of my life. So when I rewatched it a few years ago, it, it almost felt like a first time watch for me um and and i think it was i can't even remember when the blu-ray came out it's been um a few years maybe it must have been it must have been whenever kino released the blu-ray that i saw it again yeah um and and i know it was kind of in the air a lot when the irishman came out because scorsese was talking about you know it was a movie that he went back to a lot him and de niro watched it during the making of the irishman um so, you know, it's um, number one, it's just gorgeous to look at. It's just gorgeous black and white, you know, um, cinematography by um, uh, Pierre Montezel, I think is the cinematographer's name. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and, um, you know, I'm a sucker for kind of, uh, stories, especially, you know, crime or crime adjacent stories about older people. And this is like, you know, kind of older gangster character who's, who's, um, made this big score and, and, um, you know, you see the kind of, uh, the, the world he exists in this kind of world of codes and rules. And, um, it's just, you know, it's just beautifully made kind of character study ultimately, I think that's something that, that draws me to it. Um, and obviously, you know, this, this, um, this score is the, the kind of centerpiece of, of the, the, the story where some other people move in on it. And that leads to kind of the, the, um, the conflict at the center of the, the story, him and some other gangsters. Um, but, but mostly it's about, about just this, this guy, this, this great old, um, gangster character who is, is, uh, is also, um named max uh we got a couple of couple of maxes today yes um, we do so. i was noticing that yes it's yeah. quite the the crime movie name in france yeah yeah <laughs> you might want to call him uh yeah max if you're writing an homage i just looked this it is up. this is also based on a novel i've never read the novel um it's okay. not an american yeah. novel i don't think no, I just looked it up. I saw this in November of 2021, and I think I know why. Uh, that was the year uh, our mutual friend Kate Gabrielle was introducing me to some deep cuts when it came to her favorite, Elaine Delon. And yeah. so uh, we would kind of get together on Zoom for a while, like every month. And I was showing her De Niro movies. She really hadn't seen anything with De Niro. And she was showing me really deep cuts, cool movies like uh, The Sicilian Clan, which was uh, oh, yeah. one of my favorites with Jean Gabin. And so I think I got really into Gabin, who was known like as the actor who was France. I think there's a book with that title, like the actor who was France, Jean Gabin. And so these movies... Uh, like the one we're talking about, the Jacques Becker film, weren't French New Wave. They were before the New Wave, but they kind of inspired some of these filmmakers. And so I got really into it. I think I watched a few Beckers in a row, and I can't remember what the other ones were. He's also extremely famous for, let's see, notable work, might be butchering the titles here, Casque d'Or is one and Latrau mm. or the whole is another one uh both of those are very famous as well and what i wrote about uh hands off the loot in 2021 was man do jacques becker movies sneak up on you i said one minute you're having drinks in a club and the next you're torturing a guy for information hitting up your gold bar stash at your secret apartment (laughs) rounding up backup and opening crates of machine guns it takes a good 20 minutes or so to realize what he's doing in this tale of age friendship and regret but it all careens into a heartbreaking perfectly noir final act and i agree watching it again this time this would have been my second viewing it does it takes a while and they're always mentioning other people and so it's a little confusing uh when you're going in and you're trying to read the subtitles engage who is talking about whom and 
who are these people and what is that person's name? And uh, I do remember getting a little confused and I think rewinding it the first time I watched it. And second time, I was also paying attention like, wait a minute, that one's Marco or what's going on here? So it does take a little bit to get into it, but it's just a beautiful film. Like you said, I am also a big fan. I don't know if it's now because I'm in my 40s, but uh, films about people at later stages of their life are a little more interesting to me and so yeah. i think it's great with the band so much plays out on his face and so much is uh, unsaid and he just um you know embodies this sort of like you could see him if he was speaking english he would have rolled with you know humphrey bogart and sterling hayden and those guys so yeah it's great yeah absolutely and, and i you know i mean i i think it, like we said it's 54 so it does it felt like a good one to start with, even though I could have very easily chosen um, some French crime movies from the 30s and 40s that I love. But this mm -hmm. does feel like the beginning of, of something. I think it's often, you know, unless I'm totally mistaken, I, I think it's often kind of thought of as, yeah, as the, the beginning classic. of, yeah, yeah the, the beginning of, you know, that run um, in the in the mid 50s and into the 60s. Um, but yeah, I mean, he's he's just uh, incredible in it, and it, and I think you're right. I mean, I, I definitely noticed that rewatching it this time that, um, and maybe it's true of all of these movies in in some way that they they, they don't dumb anything down, and they no. kind of have to get into a rhythm with them, and that sometimes takes fifteen or twenty minutes. Yeah, but once you're there, you're there. Yeah, um, exactly. And this movie just builds towards. I mean, just that you know it doesn't at, at a certain point it just doesn't let up um you no. know yeah it puts you right in with the gang essentially you know you yeah. don't have you're not in a police station like being explained okay this is guy a and he does this like you're at the table they're out with their girls for the night and you're just part of the group and uh you know it's not you don't have a voiceover like in goodfellas this guy sets everything two times get the papers get the papers <laughs> you don't have that here yes and so um it, it's wonderful for that and i was noticing that too this was also the era i'm glad you brought up the 50s or some you know golden oldies uh bob laflambeur rafifi yeah. like some real classics too and i think while rafifi has had like another resurgence in popularity uh, it's one of my most read pieces that i've written about this is one that is maybe a little bit of a deeper cut outside of france or outside of like film buffs and so i was really glad you chose it yeah yeah, and I think that was part of why I wanted. I mean, because when I when we started to talk about doing this, you know, a bunch of movies jumped to mind, obviously, and and many of them were, you know, I mean, I guess obvious. Um, you know, I mean, Bob the Gambler's one, and and you know, a bunch of Melville movies, and yeah, um, Elevator the Elevator the Gallows, Ooh, is love that, that film, mind, yep. which I, I I truly love. And and this just I don't know again, just in the moment felt like the one for I me um, to kind of represent that that decade. Um, and and you know it's just um, stylistically it, it does feel like it it is born of so much of the American kind of gangster and, yeah. and film noir stuff of the 30s and 40s that that I love so much and. It's just so interesting to see how that 
filtered into what what Becker was doing here and then what other directors like Truffaut were doing right after him. So yeah, um, and you have Jean Moreau in the film as yeah. well. Yeah, she's, so she's uh, incredible. I really mean, great at that face. You know, she had one of the yeah. most perfect faces. And she's also an elevator to the gallows. So it's kind of like you see her here and then you see where the star rose by the end of the decade. And, yeah, I mean, uh, we would be talking yeah. about her a lot more if we were talking about elevator to the gallows, which is, yes. she's just so, she's not, it's her part in this movie is not very no, it's small, um, yes. not very big, but she's incredible in the scenes she's and in. Vital, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and and you can you can see like like you said, you can see this is this is it's interesting to see her here. It's like seeing I don't know Brad Pitt and Thelma and Louise or something. You know, it's like this is the person who's going to be a big star just a couple of years later. Or, um, yeah, hundred percent. I agree with you. And I think it's really cool because, like you said, it doesn't dumb anything down. And it has these real, you know, gangster conventions that I'm sure were in the book. Like they, they're in the club and they go and they get crates and they pull guns out of them and secret apartments, as I was mentioning. You know, some of this stuff is super cool. And I think if you're a crime writer or if you're starting out, you're writing short stories, you're trying to get into the the ranks of you know, our master crime writers or some of the classics we're talking about in French or international uh, literature or film, this is probably a good one to watch and to think about, you know, smaller characters. And another thing I love about all of these films is, you know, it's another reason why we love noir so much. Everybody has a face, you know, it's like mugs, yeah. essentially. These aren't, I kind of compare them to salad dressing or mayonnaise over here. Like, I, I don't know who some of these modern stars are. They're all inter interchangeable and pretty beige, pretty bland. And yeah. what I love about all these French movies is even if they're on, you don't know their name. You're like, I know that guy. Yes. And I love yeah. that. Yeah. Totally. And and I will say too, I mean, this is this is true of this movie in particular, but again, of all of these movies um, that we're talking about today and that we will hopefully talk about in other episodes. Um, but in French in, in French cinema and and literature and culture, and there's such respect for genre. Um, and that's mm -hmm. that's something I love about this. Um you know that yeah they, they, they took crimes mm -hmm. yeah, they don't differentiate i mean it's certainly something i've experienced firsthand with with my books they don't they don't they don't you know um look down their nose at crime fiction like yeah, like they're not snobby like, about it you know literary quote unquote literary writers often do in america and it's the same is true in cinema you can feel such respect for genre here they don't feel like you know i mean i think a lot of times um in american crime fiction that has kind of or or crime films that have you know that has uh, higher aspirations or something mm -hmm. you know there will be an element of of you know trying to that most overused and of hate, hated of phrases transcend the genre or whatever you know yeah. awful phrase that should be abolished i think um you don't get yeah, that elevated here. whatever right yeah, yeah. <laughs> you, you get total total love for the mm -hmm. genre and and this is these are films made by people who saw these gangster movies and and noirs uh coming out of america and loved them and wanted to do that and i just that enthusiasm that 
that fandom, I think, you know, comes through here. I mean, there's just such joy and, and, um, and how these movies are made and how they treat their, you know, their, their characters and their, their, um, stories. Yeah. They also, I mean, they also just, you know, you, you can't watch these movies without wanting to smoke cigarettes and drink. I was going to say that. Yeah. The style of these, (laughs) they're so twisty. It's kind of, uh, I always make that joke when you watch Wong Kar Wai movies, because there's always these clouds of smoke and you know i have asthma but it's like the sexiest thing ever on screen you know and i was uh talking to a friend about this while i was watching all of these because you have the skinny ties and you know the suits and smoking is just through all of these films very french cinema essentially is is people smoking uh there's the famous um, robin williams doing his impression of a french person it's like a dumbed down impression which is fuck you i'm french and he's like miming <laughs> with a cigarette the whole time and uh yeah it's part of the the genre in these movies and another thing with um shoot the piano player is it's the pipe smokers see they're different the yeah. pipe smokers are the bad ones not the cigarette smokers or they're more mysterious or you better watch out for those and so smoking and what all of the the behaviors that we do um you know reflect and i think that's so great it's the little things that make up a character you know i mean we see that sometimes in really good adaptations or films like uh, out of sight and jackie brown both of those um, characters played by michael keaton really chows on his gum and makes that character work and they came from of course elmer leonard books but uh, as Ray Nicolette, or as um, our buddy Rob Belushi likes to say, Ray Nicorette. But uh, <laughs> yes, so I, I love that about these films. Is there anything more about this one you want to go into? Um, I mean, you know, the the I don't want to spoil anything for for people who haven't seen it, but certainly the ending, the wow, showdown kind of scene yes. at the end is just uh, it's just incredible i mean i think it's um you know how you how you shoot action i mean it's just such a such a beautifully choreographed sequence so Mm -hmm. intense and um you can really i don't know you can feel its its influence certainly i think on you know a lot of a lot of what followed and yeah um, there was care in and planning of those shots it wasn't just chaotic or um you know or trying to be too cool i mean everything kind of has a purpose but it's really really beautiful at the same time it is i mean and that i mean again we can't you know i don't can't stress enough how how gorgeous this film looks i mean especially this um this i don't remember i must have yeah i must have watched it all those years ago when i first saw it it probably was on vhs so Mm -hmm. watching it now on this blu-ray it's just um just totally totally stunning and just um black and white is gorgeous of course you know we talked about cigarette smoke and the shadows and just um set around christmas too which is kind of a perfect idea yeah Yeah, because we have snow and uh yeah yeah it's uh yeah and i I love um you know i think you get a lot of in the driving stuff and you know you, you do get some kind of rear projection but these movies are always feel like they have great. Uh, again, I'm not a scholar, so I, don't, I probably 
wrong on some of this stuff, but I feel like there's always some great location stuff, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, is for the fifties is kind of, I mean, by American movie standards is, I guess, still pretty unusual. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, we I mean, did it sometimes in noir, like B or C or D pictures. Um, yeah, I mean, yeah, there's like lots, lots of silence yeah. and um, a couple, but but you know, the other one, what's that? Is it Crime Wave or? Um, but yeah, I always love to see, and again, this is true of all three of these movies. Just like the the kind of action of Paris, the, you know, the, the moment. That's a character. This is, it's yeah. a stereotype, but it's very true in these movies. Like our surroundings are another character. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, yeah it's it's a uh, it's it's beautiful. It's a beautiful movie, and I think it also you know this is going to be true of the other movies too. Um, this is you know these are french filmmakers in general or or not and storytellers i guess in general and and readers and viewers are not as concerned with like you know likability and sympathizing with a character that's something i'm really drawn to yeah Mm -hmm. they can be not only flawed but fucking terrible like like the character max and the the junkman like that guy is not a good guy and no. this, I mean, I, I don't think that's true of the Max in this movie. I mean, I think he's he's obviously a complicated character, and but there is a there is kind of a quality, you know, his loyalty, his sense mm-hmm. of honor, his his kind of code that he abides by that we we can certainly appreciate. He's not he's not a monster, but um, but all these characters are so complicated and messy, and I just I love that. Yeah, the three-dimensionality for sure. As we're recording this, um, Bill is sitting in front of a French Connection poster on the wall behind him. And that's kind of perfect because now that Disney owns the rights to it, they have censored about nine seconds, uh, kind of taken away some of the racism. And these are not good words to be using, but you need those words to be able to know who this man, Popeye Doyle, is. And, um, you know, if you kind of take it away, then suddenly is he being heroic? Like you need sort of the contrast it respects your intelligence and now that disney has done that every streaming copy as we're speaking right now has been edited as well as the theatrical prints going out to repertory houses which is really terrifying so hold on to your blu-rays i guess jason bailey said that the blu-ray for the french connection completely sold out on amazon yesterday because word was oh my goodness, even the version of this streaming on the Criterion channel, through no fault of their own, obviously it was a Disney decision, is also edited. So if you're discovering that movie for the first time, you're not going to really know who this man is. And so that's something that I think the French, they don't worry about. Uh, Essentially, there's no need to make all these people moralistic or uh, you know you know you're watching people that you maybe don't want to emulate just because they're telling a story about them doesn't mean they're heroic and they respect the viewer enough to understand that just like the writers of these books as well and i think flaws are a big part of our next movie uh shoot the piano player which francois truffaut made as a reaction to his massive hit 400 blows which is my favorite one of the best films of all time one of my i think three favorite movies ever made 
but after that one story of children um, and very autobiographical, he was always fascinated with uh, stories of children. He wanted to make something that was completely different and also show his love for American films and film noir. He was a big fan because he had been a film critic for the Cahir du Cinema group, along with Godard and Romare and all of those guys. He was a huge fan of noir and westerns, and uh, they didn't differentiate between like Nicholas Ray's movies and you know Orson Welles or some of the real revered uh, austere uh, classics coming out. Um, they loved all of them. And so after 400 Blows, he was going to, for like a hot minute, develop another film with children and thought, no, I want to do something that's crime. And he was very fascinated by crime and Hitchcock. Of course, Hitchcock Truffaut, there's a book, there's a documentary, there's audio cassettes. He even dated Patricia Hitchcock for a while. Um, I think they were even engaged, the daughter of Hitchcock. He made his own uh, femme fatale films and noir. Uh, and this was his first foray into it. So talk to me about Shoot the Piano Player. Uh, well, like I said earlier, probably one of, more definitely one of my, one of my first, um, yeah. you know, and uh, I would have, I would have already, I can't remember if I read the book first, um, the David Goodis okay. novel, which is, originally called down there and then um subsequent editions of it because of the movie are published as as shoot the piano player but um initially it was called uh, published as down there but i loved goodis already and um you know I, I think i just kind of got his books as i as i you know as i discovered them in bookstores mm -hmm. um so i can't remember probably read this one after i saw the film um initially it's a great film. David Goodis is one of my one of my favorite writers ever. Um, so you know, again, you know, what just should I to, start with? Uh, I've never read Goodis. Oh man. Um, well, there's a Library of America edition. I mean, if you okay. can, if you can, uh, if you can handle those books, they're not they're not the easiest to read. I know they're like mm -hmm. big and the yeah, you know, they're a little massive. Yes. Yeah, and they have those kind of like Bible pages, but um, there's a collection of David Goodis novels that the Library of America put out for. So that's that's great. Other than that, I mean, I don't know. I don't even know what's in print anymore, but okay, um, sure. some of this stuff is in the UK um, in print, I think. So Moon in the Gutter and The Blonde on the Street Corner are, are two of my favorites. Uh, Cassidy's right. Girl is another favorite, but they were all in that like, you know, early i guess it was um barry gifford in um in america who you know the great writer wild at heart and he he did that initial run of black lizard books in the 80s and he published a lot of jim thompson david goodis charles williford and so he he was i think kind of um leading the charge in in those those days in the in the 80s or thereabouts um of bringing some some attention back to these writers. Um, so I was through, through probably through that, through, you know, getting into Barry Gifford, discovering Black Lizard that I found that stuff initially. Um, but yeah, you can't go wrong. I mean, what, I just had out my copy of Shoot the Piano Player, which is um, one of those great 
you know, it's not the Black Lizard edition from Barry Gifford. It's like the vintage crime Black Lizard oh, wow. edition from a little, mm-hmm. a little later, I guess, a 90s maybe version of it. Um, and the blurb on there is from Jeffrey O'Brien. And, and I think one of the things that drew me to get Goodis initially was this blurb, which is like, if it says something like if Jack Kerouac wrote crime novels, they'd be, they'd oh. be like this. Um, and that would hook that, you. Yeah. Yeah. That pretty much sums up Goodis, who, you know, was from Philadelphia, largely wrote about Philadelphia, is probably most famous for Dark Passage, um, which is a really good novel and was made into a, a good film with Bogart and Bacall. Um, and, you know, great place writer, great, great Philly writer, um, great kind of writer uh about of of people who are are on the margins or you know just kind of low life characters um almost nobody does it better than than goodis and i think what you see in in this book and in in the movie is you know he's he's often got characters who kind of have have um fallen from some height you know who uh like the the character here who is um He's got uh, a different name in the novel than in the in the movie, um, but you know, as a famous piano player, who is now kind of like scraping by, um, mm-hmm. and uh, so yeah, I mean, for me, it, it starts with goodness for sure, and um, I think I already kind of talked a little bit about how it was so interesting at this point, this very formative time for me to get into these films that just so happened to be so influenced by all this other stuff that I was, you know, um, had discovered not, not that, um, long before. So, um, just, a uh, again, a respect for the genre that you feel here. I think it's, um, it's one of a handful of really good, goodest adaptations in france uh, the moon in the gutter is another one from from much later from the 80s um and then sam fuller made uh street of no return but he made it in france and that's another really interesting one um but yeah Truffaut just really you know he changes some stuff but he does a really good job of i think capturing the spirit of of goodest the the kind of melancholy that you know that you know suffuses his his books um and you know i love that i mean that's that's one of the things that draws me to him i think the 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 film captures it really effectively so um yeah there's kind of a sense of a dread a foreboding that kind of goes over all the proceedings like even when characters start to fall in love you're like this is not gonna end well which is kind of a noir sensibility but you know, it takes on, uh, it's a more charged here because even though it's a crime movie, this is Truffaut we're talking about. So he is very driven by matters of the heart, the things that go on between men and women. His characters love to talk and you can kind of see, even though uh, Tarantino likes to kind of denigrate um, Truffaut a little bit and raise Godard to this mythical level and kind of... Um, basically uh shit on Truffaut I am a Truffaut girl 
and you see these villains in the car just like talking about women and their attitudes and you know knee socks and they're sexual and they're weird and you know they're um, just this conversation that they have like they're trying purposely to provoke at times or um, show how cool they are and he lets it all play out he's driven by like one of the opening things that happened a guy's being chased but then he gets into a nice conversation with another man about getting married and um you know what that was like and his uh when did he fall in love with his wife wasn't until two years in when she was with the baby in the hospital that's when he started to fall in love so you learn so much about these people as they talk about love, love is kind of the the driving force of Truffaut movies, uh, Varda movies, Demi movies, and I'm, I'm Romare. You kind of all of those filmmakers that we dearly love, and even when he does genre or his version of genre, Truffaut uh, can't betray that sensibility. And I think, you know, it's really darkly romantic. It's sad too because he's someone who is trying to escape his past. I don't know if I want to get into too many spoilers, but he's someone who's changed his name. He was a very successful concert pianist. He suffered a tragedy. You will find out more as the film goes on. Um, he gets involved in the scheme involving his brothers and crime. And then this bar he works at and all of uh, drawing a bunch of heat for various reasons. But it all kind of stems from you can't outrun the past. And what do you owe people romantically and also just familial? Uh, what do you owe the people you grew up with and the people who also might know your identity and uh, all of those questions? Yeah. Yeah, I think that's all all spot on. It's it's uh, yeah, definitely uh, love a lot of those little side conversations yeah. and, and there is i mean there is some dark humor here and yeah. there's, there's definitely a feeling of of doom and one of the things that i mean and this is true of of so many french new wave movies i think rewatching at this time just just blown away by how how contemporary and modern modern it still feels you know um however it many years later so fresh yeah, yeah i mean but 70 years later, 70, is that right? Wow. No, not quite 70, yeah. 60, Close. 63. Yeah. Um, and, um, and also, I mean, and this is, again, this is true of this, this whole movement, I think just how they're Truffaut in this case, or we could say this is easily about Godard or Melville or whoever, just how they're trying to use the whole toolkit, the whole, you know, the, the language of cinema um they're they're doing everything you know i mean i think when you watch a lot of newer contemporary movies you you don't see that as much mm -hmm. um these were people who you know were essentially inventing a lot of that, that yeah. language or improving well, upon just, it or, uh, yeah um so uh yeah i mean it's just just gorgeous and um I love I love the you know the the use of a voiceover similar to um to don't touch the loot you know great great focus on faces and mm -hmm. um it's uh it's just a you know it's what 80 83 minutes or something it's perfect perfect yeah. length it's super it's short. got that it's got that spirit of 
a lot of my favorite, you know, kind of 40s and early 50s American noir stuff. I don't know. I thought of, uh, well, there's another, what's the other, um, shit, what's the? Yeah, it's the really gooders. economical, the storytelling. Yeah, get in, tell the story, get out. Don't die. There's a, there's a great um, goodest adaptation uh, with, uh, oh man, I'm going to, from the early 50s with Anne Bancroft and, um, um, but you know, that, that movie and others. Nightfall. Um, Nightfall. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. 1956. Yeah. Great book too. Um, so not, not too much before, um, before this film even, and that's Jacques Tournier. I never know how to say his name. Sorry. Mm -hmm. Um, but that has some of the, you know, similar, similar feel to it. I mean, I love that, that transition from Paris to kind of the, the country hideout at the end and the snow. And, um, you know, that's, I feel like that's kind of, uh, almost a, a trope in some of those great noir, um, movies from that period. And yeah, I love what Truffaut does with it here. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it's just for me though, I mean, you know, when it comes down to it, I, I think I primarily respond to it as, as an adaptation of, of one of my favorite writers and, you know, really um, one that captures the the tone and spirit of not only that book specifically, but of, of goodness on the whole. That's really cool. Yeah. Truffaut is a big reader. I can't remember if it was like um, three books a week or how many movies he had an actual diary he would keep of how many he watched and how many he read because he knew it was important to feed himself artistically and just also for brain power. Again, that reverence for the written word and for art that you get in France. Uh, this is such a beautiful movie. It's another one, just thinking about it as you were talking about the beauty of it, um, that is set in winter. Like there is a, a moment that plays out in the snow in the end that's very devastating and so the first two films that we're dealing with are, you know, uh, snowy noirs, I guess. So Criterion, yeah. if you're listening, you can, you know, put together. We had these snow western um, series of films, like a little festival, a little package. We could do a snow noir, essentially. Yeah, that's a good, yeah. That's a good idea. That's a really and, good idea. There's a, there's a bunch of them. They're, yeah. And this is a favorite also of Allison Anders, who is mm. a wonderful filmmaker has been a past guest here on the podcast talking about her career uh she was an independent filmmaker in the 90s with gas food lodging she actually did i want to say it was um a guest appearance with her friend walter Chaw on shoot the piano player and oh, I, nice. think, I think it's on youtube if it's not i'll delete that part oh was but... that the was that the denver public library yes series? the denver oh, during yeah. the pandemic I... yes yeah that's right. And I, I love Alison Anders and she, I love her films. Um, I remember I was watching those Denver Public, Walter's Denver Public Library series pretty, pretty faithfully. And um, yes, it's available back on YouTube. Nice. I know, I, I need to, go to back. watch I must have missed that one. I don't think I saw that one for some reason. It was um, uh, that, right around Christmas of that year. Yeah, that makes that makes total sense. And I think, you know, um, perfect. Yeah, that that. A movie like Gas Food Lodging actually has a lot of the kind of, I mean, a lot of that spirit, I think, of that kind of goodest-like spirit. It's interesting. One of my favorite writers 
contemporary writers is this um this great writer willie vlaughton who's also an uh uh singer songwriter in the band richmond fontaine and the um the delines and he he loves uh he loves guest food lodging. It's his favorite movie ever. And also loves David Goodis. And oh, wow. um, I can't remember where I was going with this, but I, th- I thought that you was an interesting connection. You can see the sensibility. Yeah. Yeah. I can see the sensibility there. I mean, I love Goodis and I love guest food lodging too. And I love Willie. So um, I-, I think that that's an interesting, interesting line to to draw, but you, yeah, you, you, you know, and this is true. Both of these movies, all these movies again, um you really do you know you don't feel like Truffaut is ever looking down his nose at like adapting this pulp novel um even though he does some other things with it um and this is you know 60 so Goodis star Goodis' star had kind of fallen the in the United States you know years before this I mean briefly you know had a had a moment of kind of success because of Dark Passage and um you know, lived in Hollywood for a little while before returning to Philadelphia and was just kind of, you know, writing, writing pulp novels pretty quickly and, and publishing them. So to embrace, you know, someone, a writer like Goodis, um, and, you know, to adapt him on this level is just such a, such a, a beautiful thing to me. You know, I mean, it's not, I don't feel like it's something that would have been happening here at the, at that time, especially, you. you know. Yeah, because we were starting to make um, gritty, you know, Sam Fuller style, um, independent street noir films. Uh, I wrote an essay for the Columbia Box 4 for um, for the UK. Oh, Indicator? Is it indicator? Thank no. you. Yes. <laughs> I wrote for the Indicator label out of the UK. And I did the Chicago Syndicate, which was kind of a quick and dirty noir towards the end of the 50s, shot on the streets of Chicago. And so in America, we were starting to fizzle out. Noir was kind of over, and we were moving into bigger spectacle to compete with television. So I agree with you. I don't think we would have. And if we would have adapted it, it wouldn't have been anything like this style. And there were some issues with censors as far as some nudity. There's some sex in the film. I mean, it's largely off camera. It's implied. But, you know, it's very French and very respectful of, um, you know, um, relationships and sophisticated relationships between adults. And in America, we were still making uh, kind of dumbed down or simplified things at this time. So, yeah, I agree with you. I don't think we would have made this in 1960. It's a a really interesting period because it's kind of, um, you know, not that long before it might have gotten, you know, the 40s into the early 50s when that kind of writers like Goodis were still being adapted, I think. And there was still that kind of desire for those those sorts of stories and films but then there's kind of a dead period between whatever you know mid 50s into until the new hollywood kind of era uh for for stuff like this i think so yeah i mean i think this is i can't remember when goodest died there's a great great biography um of him um that um philippe garnier wrote and eddie muller is republished uh not that oh, okay. long ago and his uh his his press um i think goodest died in the i want to say 67 i could be wrong but 
it was kind of our rough end of his life and mm. you know so i think he you know despite the success of this film and in, in france you know, it was still kind of um things were things were on a kind of downward spiral for him generally and you know again a lot of that a lot of that kind of melancholy downtrodden doomed <laughs> spirit that informs his books really really comes across here and and you know and that in that ending, which is uh, which is just a, a a great noir ending, I think. I agree with you. I think it's a perfect uh, fatalistic noir ending. Essentially, we won't spoil exactly what happens, but you can kind of see that sense of foreboding from start to finish, essentially. And our next film also has all of these have very memorable endings. We're talking about. Um, Max and the Junkman, which is the 1971 crime drama by Claude Sauté. And it was new to uh, both Bill and very, very new to me, thanks to Bill. And it was partially adapted by the filmmaker based on a novel by Claude Neron, if I'm saying that correctly. Again, we apologize if we are butchering uh, these names. Saute had made five movies with his favorite actress, who was, of course, Romy Schneider. And it's a really good film. It's very, you know, it fits kind of like, even though this was 71, if we made it in America, you could kind of see it happening with a Roy Scheider or, or a character of I've got French connection on the brain. But essentially, with like the new Hollywood era, you could you could see this happening. But not the way it plays out there. And I'm so glad that you discovered it and you recommended it to me because I loved it. Yeah. Oh yeah. And, and again, thanks to, thanks to, I was blanking on his name. I think it was Vincent, but um, yes. he, 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 you know, thank recommended. You. <laughs> thank Sauté's you book films. buyer. Yes. Yeah. And um, I, I was so glad. I mean, he, he basically was like, you know this guy's right up your alley and mm -hmm. and uh, based on the films of his i've seen so far he was absolutely right and um this is uh you know just just my kind of movie through and through through and through um like i was saying earlier i mean just this this i don't know can you imagine i mean i guess i can imagine it in like you know 70s new hollywood stuff maybe but um now can you imagine this no character way. like this like no. i mean talk about you know the, the stuff that drives me nuts. hello entrapment yes yeah i mean just that but the the fact that this is a deeply unlikable main character yes i mean there's not this guy is really I think it reveals itself more and more as the film goes on, just how, how transactional he is with everyone. Yeah, mm -hmm. How, and, and the fact that he's, you know, entitled and that, that yep. he's, you know, lives on this private, he's a cop, but he lives on this private income from his rich family. I mean, he's just a very hateable character. And that's part of what's <laughs> so enthralling about this movie to me, I think. And, um, you know, and just uh, his, um, his like, his skin um, gets whiter and whiter throughout the movie, just gets paler and paler throughout the movie. It's kind of ghostly quality. And Romy Schneider is just incredible. Like she mm -hmm. just, you know, I think it's maybe, I can't remember how long it is before she shows up in the movie, maybe a half hour or so. Um, 
yeah maybe a little bit longer so much because she's kind of like a life force yeah she just blows the doors off the movie once she once she comes into it i think and um Uh, i had a screenwriter reply to me last night after i posted about the film on twitter howard rodman who said that in, in his heyday he actually wrote an adaptation of this for John Wu and Terrence Chang. Uh, Terrence Chang is his producer that uh, they were going to make. And you can kind of see Wu's interest. He loves Melville. He loves French crime movies. He made uh, Once a Thief, which is kind of like a half um, like a love triangle thing, but it's a crime movie, but it's a comedy, but it also has a little bit of like they even shout out Jules and Jim, his love of French. It's kind of a grab bag movie. It isn't great, but it's it's worth tracking down if you're a fan of Wu. And you know, you can kind of see maybe in this era he was starting to think, I want to make a Melville or a French movie because he was always drawing from these French romantic uh, interests. Um, and influences um, from these earlier films. And so when I heard that, it just perfectly fit with uh, what you would think. And I think Wu would have done brilliant things with it. Maybe a Hong yeah. Kong version of it. I'm not, or an American version, wherever he would have made it. But uh, I don't think you could do this today. Maybe maybe he had trouble and that's why it didn't uh, pan out. I'm not sure. But yeah. yeah, I could sure see people, you know, audiences not responding to to yeah. this this main character i mean you know interestingly i think you know i know we're both huge sydney lumet fans and i thought i thought of lumet watching this a little bit and you know it's a few years before dog day afternoon and i think i felt like a little bit of a a connection there maybe i don't know yes. if this would have been a movie that that influenced him or that he saw and, and liked at all um but yeah some know, of the greediness felt- the earthiness and, it, and it the feels kind of grimy. Have, yeah, yeah, it's grimy. And you know, I, I mean, one of the things I love about this movie is that it's it's basically just about. I mean, you have this this detective character, the Max character, played by mm-hmm. um, Michelle Pickley. Yeah, um, yeah, something. I never know how to say his name. Um, and but you also have this this group of you know, kind of fuck up gangster wannabe characters that he tries to entrap basically into robbing a bank so i think i thought of it in that in that light the fact that he's like you know he's so focused on on fuck-ups and if anybody's sympathetic here it's it's those guys and it's it really is yeah and it's it's her it's her character it's you know the the kind of low life like you know quote unquote low life characters in the movie are the sympathetic ones and, and the, the the cops and the other Max and you know these are the, the bad guys in the movie essentially. Yeah, they're sort of pushing the buttons or pulling the puppet strings on this uh hapless group of criminals like suggesting, yeah, this is the day to rob, this is what we want, and you know, feeding info. It, it's very like I don't think that would hold up at all in America <laughs> the way that this case uh, goes down. But you know you can also see in the way that they introduce the members of the of the gang and start talking about them as reminded of heat the scene in the restaurant or as they're deducing who all of these members of the group are and the obsessive cop who is a bit unlikable al pacino you can see michael mann was 
Um, he likes to deny that he was a fan of Melville, but you can't deny it when you oh, watch yeah. his movies at all. And uh, you can kind of see, oh, I bet he saw Max and the Junkman or uh, other films by Saute maybe. And or, you know, as you were pointing out, I can see Lumet as being somebody who would have watched this and thought it was uh, interesting. Some of the filmmakers of this, uh, Frankenheimer, too. Yeah. 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 Or Freakin. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Yeah, mm-hmm. and I love, I mean, some of my favorite scenes in this movie, I think, are just like them at the, the you know, seeing, um, uh, I, I can't remember the, the actor's name who, who plays, you know, it's a- Abel is the character's name, mm-hmm. um, who's like Max's old friend, which prompts this idea to, to basically set this guy up. He's a scrap trader. Or whatever. And, it's not like, that, oh, I feel no. any sympathy for my old friend no. who's now just, I'm going to use this guy. Yeah. Yeah. That's all. And, but you know, some of my favorite scenes are just like Abel and, and, um, and Remy Schneider's character at the bar, like at this little cafe. And it's, it's very much like a, a movie about class in a lot of ways, I think. And it, you know, um, those characters are just really, I don't know. I, I can't think of a ton of other movies that are, I mean, it's sort of a heist movie. I mean, not really, but there is, you know, there is a a, a bank robbery or a, an attempted bank robbery at at the at the heart of the movie. But um, it's unlike most heist movies in that, you know, I mean, I guess it is actually. Now that you say it, I guess it's kind of got a little bit of that heat element where you're you're with the you're with the robbers maybe a little bit more than you're you're with the cop. Um, and obviously, yeah. in this case even more so than in heat um this this cop is a bad bad guy yeah you're kind of with the group again not to the extreme that you were in hands off the loot where you're like it starts out you're at the table with them but you know you do kind of feel like you're part of the gang a little bit like you know they get together i watched the town last weekend which is a film i love i actually prefer the extended edition which has 30 extra minutes treats the women uh characters much better the ending makes more sense it's completely different and you know there's a scene where like john ham is an fbi man and they're watching them like have a barbecue together outside the the bad guys and they're like kind of looking down their noses at these people and how the jeremy renner's character his sister has a baby and she's a drug mule and uh, they're figuring out how to use these people and how to you know make cases and i get that that's their job and everything they don't take the entrapment level to this extreme yeah but you can kind of see there is an issue of class going on and also a moral and an ethical issue of if we didn't push these buttons what would happen i mean these people in the town they were going to rob no matter what and criminals are going to be criminals essentially but in max and the junkman you know he really tips the scale several times and plays god yeah 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 i mean obviously you know he's this and again this kind of entitled yeah guy who's who's searching for something and has this focus on on you know on justice or or whatever but um mm-hmm. this whole charade with Romy Schneider's character really I mean I, th- I think the ending works and I won't spoil the ending but I think the yeah. ending works because mm-hmm. of her performance and because of the kind of 
the the melancholy realness of her her performance that you know his there encounters with her yeah, yeah that his encounters with her totally shift something in him um mm-hmm. where he feels like what he does at the end is a form of justice for her i guess you know and that's a really fascinating thing here and i think you know this is that could have been her character could have been a very one-dimensional character yeah. and, uh, she's not at all i think she's a really mm-hmm. complicated character i mean i think the fact that you know she's in this relationship and and um is a sex worker and and you know that that's not like a cause of friction at all with abel no. there's some really interesting stuff here yeah like he doesn't touch her money and how um she started out and what happened and you know as they're summing up the the gang you know because let's face it a lot of times in these films the female characters are pretty one-dimensional they're either femme fatales or they're the girl that they want uh or they're gonna you know get betrayed like the women really kind of get um shortchanged in these uh films uh, in the genres but even though she is playing a prostitute and you know there's as soon as you read that in the summary you're like ooh, okay we have a, a hooker yeah. to cry movie big surprise or whatever but she is the life force and kind of the one that not a hooker with a heart of gold not like that stereotype i don't even i was talking to megan abbott about that in the paul schrader episode and Megan said she hates that term because, you know, women can be all kinds of things. And um, just because one does one thing, it doesn't define them. And I think you get that with the Romy Schneider character here, for sure. It kind of reminded me of a, a film a little bit like Hardcore and the um, Susan Hubley character that we talked about, uh, Megan and I, in that episode, too. You can maybe see them uh, kind of hanging out if they had been in the same area, essentially. Yes. Yeah, and it's, I mean, I love that. I mean, they're, they're, what happens in the film is, uh, you know, he, he basically gets this kind of secret little apartment where yep. he meets her and they don't, I mean, they, they just hang out. They don't, uh, yeah. you know, they like do, they play cards and, and eat yeah, and drink. Yeah, he makes it like don't. he's lonely. And, <laughs> yeah, yeah, they have a weird little kind of domestic setup and it's not ever about, sex it's uh mm-hmm. he's just i mean obviously his ultimate goal is to to convince her to um talk her her boyfriend and his yeah. his crew into, into robbing this bank in a roundabout way but um but beyond that it's just kind of this weird little sad kind of domestic relationship <laughs> that they yes. have and and she's just, I mean, you know, I, I said it already, but she's just such an incredible presence. And mm-hmm. in this movie, um, you know, there's a there's a handful of sequences with her. It's just like, you know, just stunning and, and um, just a great performance. Yeah. It really is. Yeah, I was so glad that you chose this one so I could discover it as well. And I know we're going to have to come back and do other films uh, for future episodes so if you have any favorite off the beaten path french movies uh, crime films and you're listening you might have to hit us up on twitter and let us know and um, we'll see if we can track them down or if we're interested and you know um, this will probably be a series because i had a lot of fun doing this thank you so much bill yeah no absolutely thanks for having me and thank thanks for you know 
coming up with this idea and there's so much i mean there's so many different ways we could go at this and um, it was yeah. nice to focus on films from these three decades but you know as i was kind of thinking about other stuff we could talk about it you know i was i know we both like claude chabral a lot and, yes. and um, there's so much you know 80s and 90s stuff that i really um i really respond to and as well as much earlier stuff so i mean there's mm -hmm. there's kind of no no limit to that this. Yeah, sky um, is the limit for sure. So much, so much incredible stuff, and it's uh, it's definitely, you know, um, a place I, I've I've looked. You know, as I said earlier, like I, you know, I very often look to look to these films as I look to you know, writers like David Goodis um, for for inspiration when I'm working on my own stuff. So you know, it's interesting that these are all adaptations too and i think you know looking at the kind of quick list i i compiled of favorites that we could potentially talk about and i just did like 20 or 25 off the top of my head i was definitely struck by how many of them were adaptations of, of mm -hmm. novels not all of them adaptations of american crime novels but there are a, a handful by goodis and a, you know at least two or three by jim thompson you know adaptations of jim thompson novels and then like like these um don't touch the loot and max and the junk man are both based on novels too so really um interesting as as works of um, adaptation too yeah absolutely so what Thanks, we're saying Jen, is yeah. stay tuned yes absolutely yeah any anytime i'm i'm uh, i'm ready to do round two I also want to thank everyone for listening, especially my patrons who support the show and help fund my research equipment, film rentals, RSS fees, and more for as little as a dollar per month at the Film Intuition Patreon, which is the home base for the show. Other ways you can support the podcast are by sharing, reviewing, and subscribing to Watch with Jen wherever you get your podcasts, and also checking out the cool merch store hosted and created by our talented logo designer, Kate Gabrielle. You can find the merchandise store, including shirts, tote bags, stickers, and more by visiting filmintuition.com and clicking on the shop link. The show's theme music is solo acoustic guitar by Jason Shaw and is available in the free music archive. You can also reach me or interact with Watch With Jen anytime on Twitter, either at Film Intuition or our Watch With Jen account as well. Well, until next time, please take care and happy movie watching. This is Jen Johans at FilmIntuition.com and FilmIntuition on social media and Letterboxd. And this is Watch with Jen. <laughs>